Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 81. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I'm sitting down with two biology teachers, uh, two of my uh, partners in crime for a project I've been working on recently, Anne Cortina and Nikki Chambers. Anne and Nikki are both science teachers at West High School in Torrance, California. Both Anne and Nikki have taught a wide range of science courses, including first-year biology, honors biology, AP biology, and astrobiology. Over the past two years, they have been part of the development team for the curriculum, the Beetle Project, Investigating Insects in a Warming World, which is now posted on the UC Berkeley Understanding Evolution website. Welcome, Anne and Nikki. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. We were chatting a little bit here as uh, we were having Indigenous Peoples Day in Massachusetts, and you guys are working, which I was uh, I was shocked that you guys had school today. So, but uh, yeah, we we were talking about the disruptions of the school year. But aside from having random days off and that sort of thing, how's the beginning of the school year going? Well, every year has its uh, challenges, but I think we're getting through them okay. So far, so good. Yep. Are you guys still in the middle of a, a building project? Thank goodness. Oh, yeah. No. Well, <laughs> we we just got into our library a week ago. Hmm. Um, but other than that, I think we're pretty. I much... think we're pretty settled. There's always there's always little things, but um, for the most part, we're both back in our classrooms, happy to be back in in our labs, and uh, hopefully, the worst is behind us for a good long, for the rest of our careers anyway. <laughs> and we'll probably find all kinds of things that we lost as the years go by. Right. So that'll be something to look forward to. Exactly. Yeah, it is always interesting. We had a building project, uh, gosh, about 15 years ago. And when they did it, it was great that we moved into classrooms. We got these brand new science classrooms. We moved to terrible science classrooms. But when they did that, they built one wing and then they retrofitted the other wing. So they sort of crammed the whole school into the new wing. Mm -hmm. So we kind of got new lab spaces, but we really didn't get to use it because we ended up sharing the space with like history teachers and English teachers and, and that yeah. sort of thing for the next year and a half. So we semi moved into a spot, but we really had to wait like two years before we could really, you know, move all of our stuff into the places because we were, we were sharing the space for a little while. So I know that the building project end dates sort of um, are soft end dates. <laughs> right. Well, we were both pretty excited because we moved back into our classrooms in January, but we didn't actually have our overhead projectors mounted up until about four <laughs> weeks ago. So um, that was a little less than timely, um, but we have projectors and we have screens that don't appear to be falling on anybody's heads. And uh... it's it's always a process. Yes. Yeah. But you're back in your space. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the questions I like to ask everybody to start. Maybe we'll start with you, Anne, and then we'll move on to Nikki. So, Anne, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into a science classroom? Well, I was always interested in science, and that was biology was my major in college. But like many, I took a gap year that ended up <laughs> extending for 20 years while I worked in a family business, and more through necessity, I guess, than you know um, my own personal interest. And so finally, I got the opportunity to go back to school and get a teaching credential, and I did, and I've been teaching ever since then. So when did you get a your first biology degree? Well, like what kind of what kind of time frame are we talking about? Like yeah, when did well, you get that original degree? That was in 1975. <laughs> <laughs> and I go back and I look, I have a few of my original textbooks, and boy, are they ever different. <laughs> <laughs> So you go from like 75 to 95, not being involved in the world of biology. Um, and then you come back and you get a master's degree and you get into the classroom in like the late nineties. Is that a fair time frame? Uh, so my first, I can remember my first day because it was, well, my first week was the week of nine 11. So oh. since 2001. Um, so wow. yeah, I, maybe I was in, um, that company business for longer than 20 years. It seemed like it, but <laughs> by the time I got my teaching credential, it was 2001. 
Yeah. So you, you had to experience not just like the, I think of the whirlwind that I sometimes think of when I have my degree, you know, I got my degree in 96 in biology and like nothing is relevant from that. I learned in college from 96. I can't imagine getting the degree in 75 uh, and all of the world. Um, how has it been in terms of the, the, from a biology curriculum standpoint, um, getting back into things in that time frame because you do teach you know advanced biology courses in high school what was the ramp up like for you in terms of engaging in the science so so actually I enjoyed it because it um, you know pushed me out of a comfort zone and into like a whole new world basically and you know it had been so many years since I um, had done any kind of lab work I mean when I was in college I mouth pipetted, for <laughs> plates and uh, virology was in its um, infancy. So, mm. um, you know, just doing molecular biology was amazing. And um, I, I mean, I, I had to relearn some things, but it, it was um, actually, it, it was pretty beneficial, I think, because I came in very current, I think, because I had just recently taken classes I needed to take and things like that. What I didn't know how what I didn't know how to do was to teach. Hmm. Yeah, but then that's that's how we all are when we first walk in the classroom. So <laughs> even even with the student teaching. Um, <laughs> so uh, how about you, Nikki? How, what did you do uh, before you became a teacher? What was your pathway? Into well, the interestingly enough, Anne's and my pathways are actually rather similar. And even from hmm. the very beginning, we we overlapped by virtue of the fact that I invaded Anne's classroom <laughs> and shared her classroom my first year. Um, I also, I, I have my, my bachelor's and my master's in biology, um, vintage, uh, let me think, 81 and 82 wow. were, were my respective um, bachelor's and master's. And then I also took quite a long hiatus um, raising kids and doing other things and came back around to teaching um, when my youngest was in the fourth grade. Um, I had a business at home writing medical reports, which was great when my kids were young. Um, and it, it did tap into my my interest in biology and medicine and so forth. But by the time my youngest was in the fourth grade, I was getting kind of bored of writing about, you know, hip replacements and, and um, you know, bad backs and so forth. And so my eminently sensible husband suggested that maybe I ought to look into substitute teaching in our district. We just live two blocks from, from this high school. So he, he said, you know, look into substitute teaching. You'd be on the same calendar as our kids. You could sub when you want to, if they're homesick, whatever. And I thought, ew, I don't want to be a teacher. <laughs> that was the last thing I wanted to do. I, I, you know, people have been telling me my whole, had been telling me my whole life that they thought I'd make a good teacher. And I had really not enjoyed high school very much. And I thought, now why on earth would I want to spend my days in a place that I didn't like in the first place? Um, but I couldn't come up with a logical counter argument to my engineer's husband's suggestion. So I reluctantly dragged myself out and got my substitute teaching credential. And I actually found I quite enjoyed it. But what I enjoyed was elementary school. And so oh, then wow. I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and get my multiple subject credential. And I'm going to teach kids how to read and sing songs and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And then so I actually subbed for fourth, five, six, seven, four years. And then when my son was in the seventh grade, he had an appalling, a very nice, but appallingly bad life science teacher. And I knew that none of the kids were learning anything. And so I thought, well, you know, how about if I just offer to come in once a week and do something with them, some little activity or lab or something, because that's about all they're going to get out of this. And so I did. And that reminded me how much I really loved biology. So then I did an about face and went and got my my single subject credential instead. And um, lo and behold, a part-time slot opened up here at my kid's high school. And um, my poor, my youngest, same youngest who, who I keep <laughs> mentioning, had the appalling misfortune of having his mother accept a job at his school <laughs> three weeks before he started his freshman year, which he thought was the worst thing ever. And um, I ended up here as a three-period-a-day teacher with no classroom of my own. I 
invaded Anne's space for one of those periods and two other teachers shared their classroom with me, the others. So I was this itinerant teacher for three mm -hmm. periods a day and then somebody retired and I got hired full time and here I am. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about how big, I'm wondering how big of a school is West High School. I'm just, I don't know the context of it. How big a school is this? We have, we have about 2,200 students, okay. so it's a pretty big suburban high school. Yeah, so it's similar, comparable. I mean, my school has been floating around between 1,900 and 2,000 for the last few years, which is considered sort of giant in this part of the country, but I know it's, yeah. um, it's, it's just sort of a large high school when you get west right. of the Mississippi. Um, well, that's a, it's an interesting pathway that you guys have a lot of similarity of getting degrees and then going away and coming back. When you said, ooh, teaching, I thought you were going to say, ooh, substitute teaching. Because <laughs> to, no. to me, it seems like, and I, my view of substitute teaching has changed quite a bit now on this side, looking and watching how substitutes come in. And we have you know some fantastic substitutes who come in um, and really engage right. nicely with the students. But I never really viewed substitute teachers as having like as an entryway path back when I was a student like to me that seemed like the worst pathway into the classroom oh absolutely I mean to be a sub in high school seemed you'd have to have a death wish I, I always figured you know so um, that's why elementary was safer yeah. and it was fun and I enjoyed singing songs and practicing writing the letter <laughs> r for a while and then it got a little repetitive but um so yeah so you know life is what happens when you least expect it yeah well, so we, as I alluded to in, the, in my introduction, we've been a part of a, a curriculum team, and I, I don't think we've ever had this conversation, even though we've been on, I don't know, half a dozen conference calls over the last two years of this project. Right. Uh, but I don't know how you guys got involved with this this Beetle project that we're, we've been part of um, out of the UC Berkeley labs and UC Berkeley Museum. So um, how did you each get involved with the Beetle project? Well, my connection, this is Anne, mm -hmm. uh, with Nikki, and um, and that's all I have to say about it, but Nikki will tell you how she got involved. Right. Um, yeah. Involving Anne basically involved me sticking my head around the corner one day because we, we teach in adjoining offices or classrooms and probably saying something along the lines of, I have this really neat curriculum project that they're looking for other teachers to try out. You want to join me? And Anne had made the stupid... <laughs> decision to say yes and here she is um my connection to um the uc museum of paleontology goes back to my early days of teaching and it's definitely one of those um you know sometimes it matters more who you know than what you know kind of stories um ann and i actually had the same uh credential advisor at um the university where we went to get our credentials we both did our credentials at cal state long beach um, I think you were two years ahead of me, but our, our credential advisor, um, introduced me to the then education director at UC, um, at the UC Museum of Paleontology early in my teaching career. And I don't even remember exactly what context that was in. Was it with astrobiology? Maybe? Yeah. Um, when you were developing astro. Yeah, although UCMP is really more evolutionary biology. I don't remember why that why that came about initially. But anyway, I've had this longstanding relationship with UCMP for most of my teaching career. Um, they run a summer week-long um, teacher workshop on uh, teaching evolution, which I have pretty faithfully attended for most of the last decade. And like these things happen, you know, you go for a few years and then some year they ask you to maybe participate in one of the activities. And a couple of years later, you end up leading a bunch <laughs> of the activities. And so it's kind of evolved from there. Sorry, no pun intended. Um, and so at some point two years ago, um, a couple of the people from UCMP contacted me and said, you know, do you know of anybody who might be interested in helping develop this sort of vaguely framed at that point, mm -hmm. um, education and outreach project for one of our, um, principal investigators here. And, and it sounded like fun and interesting. And so that was why I, how, why and how I said yes. And then I dragged into it and, and into it. And then here we are. 
Yeah, I think we'll get into my how I got back into this, uh, how I got dragged into this as well, because I know that you guys were sort of interested in this because you, you guys don't know it. Um, so just as a sort of interesting aside, um, I ended up doing a uh, a curriculum project. Uh, I, got, I want to say it was like four or five years ago uh, with a group that I work with out of Cambridge called BioBuilder, which is a synthetic biology group. And they had this idea that they were going to build a uh, possibly a curriculum based off of that that would have some evolution ties. And they had mm -hmm. reached out to the UC Berkeley Understanding Evolution website and Anna in particular, um, who was sort of our point contact person, was there. Um, and we spent, uh, gosh, about eight to 10 months trying to do an evolution synthetic biology curriculum. And um, I worked on... Uh, fruit flies um, and cold coma recovery as my component oh, okay. of it. Um, and I went down this pathway with heat shock proteins mm -hmm. and I asked all of these questions, molecular questions that nobody knew the answers to. Um, and I had found a bunch of resources and I had collated them, but like I got to a point where translating the labs that I was working into an evolutionary context, you know, four or five years ago, there was just too big of a black box to make a trans uh, a translational curriculum that could be applied to high school students. It was mm -hmm. it was just too big of a gap. Um, and similarly, there was that uh, drowsy Drosophila curriculum that was being put out by mm -hmm. Florida right around the same time um, that was hitting a lot of the same notes as what mm -hmm. I could do. So like my pivot was already being done by somebody else. So I kind of abandoned that. And so when they started up this project, uh, Anna from uh, Understanding Evolution reached out to me to ask for the resources that I had. And so I sent them and on the end of that email, I said, oh, and if you need teachers to help work on your curriculum, I'd be interested in doing this because it was a sort of an unanswered question that I had tried to work out, but I couldn't quite do it on my own at the time. Right. So this looked like an opportunity to sort of revisit something that I had, you know, butted my head against the wall for <laughs> eight, eight months or so and couldn't figure out how to make it work in curriculum, even though it was a pretty cool project, no pun intended, mm -hmm. um, okay. <laughs> with that idea. So I think we've got... Oh. <laughs> anyway, so cold coma recovery aside. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so it sounds like so you guys both did different parts. Or you both have different credits. So, so Nikki, you're uh, credited as um, doing the standard lessons for the project. So as you said, we sort of walked into this undefined space of, you know, Caroline's lab and some broad ideas and the work of um, Nathan Rank and Elizabeth Elhoff and, and what they were doing. Um, and, and I don't know how your thoughts changed as, as you were going, but you ultimately pulled together this very impressive group of standard lessons for this project. What were your goals about creating these these lessons? Well, I, I, you know, I guess if I had known how, how much expertise you had in all of this, I might have gone running, you know, into the wilderness, because I really engaged in this project, probably more by virtue of my experience in writing curriculum in a broad sense than in knowing anything. I mean, I knew nothing about heat shock proteins, chill coma recovery, Drosophila ladybugs, just nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was this interesting opportunity to to work with with an an, uh, an NSF founded funded project, and I'll be honest, I've done that a couple of times in the past, mostly in the context of astrobiology, and have been deeply disappointed mm. because a lot of the education pieces end up being some graduate student spending you know two hours writing something that looks like a classroom worksheet that no teacher would ever use. And now they can check off the box on the grant application that says, yes, we developed an outreach piece. Yep. It became pretty clear from the get-go that Caroline's motivation was completely different. She was really genuinely interested in creating a bridge piece that would bring some of this authentic research down into the high school laboratory classroom. Um, a lot of desire to make that really workable to to acknowledge the pros and cons of of a university lab environment as a model for what can be done in high school and to work with the pros and and work around the cons 
and, and create a genuinely useful product. And I think that was, that was super exciting to me mm. that, that she, that that's really her vision for where she's going with all of this. Um, and then of course, on top of it, when, I mean, you guys remember the first couple of months, there was just talk about doing remote work. And then this opportunity came up to spend some time there, um, the summer of 2018 and, and I was the one who happened to be available. And so I went and then just the experience of working in this, this very collaborative lab and, and having the feeling that I wasn't just the fly on the wall. I wasn't just being given some little, sorry, um, or the ladybug, um, that I wasn't just being given some little trivial task again to check off a box, but but I came in and and they made me feel like I was really a valuable part of the team. And they had respect for my, pers- for my perspective as a classroom teacher. And it really became this wonderful collaboration. And, and I will admit, I got hooked by the research itself. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to create... I wanted exactly what Caroline wanted. I wanted to take this really interesting work with these marvelous little creatures who you can put in ice for four days and take them out. And in two minutes, they kind of wave their little feet at you and go, hi, what's up? I'm fine. Um, I mean, I'll never quite get over the wonder in that. And what a neat thing to write some accessible lessons for. So that's a really, really long answer to what my goal was, but it really has become a goal of, of I have experienced this research firsthand. I'm very invested in it myself now. I think it's a great model for what authentic science feels like. And I definitely think I really wanted to bring that authentic feel into high school classrooms. It does not hurt that that, of course, is exactly the goal of the next generation science standards. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is a great model for that. I think this is a great way to do that. Yeah. And on top of it, it um, I am a big fan of, of storylined work. I think that sort of comes through as you <laughs> look at the work that I created, that it was part of a right. larger, I, I'm a big fan of a larger story and and your lessons definitely sure. do that. They They're not a, it's not a unit about evolution. It's not a unit about, you know, any one particular checkbox on a list of like standard curriculum units. It's an integrated story because the reality is when you work in a lab, you are pulling different threads or pulling from different ideas from different disciplines in order to help understand the, the story of what's going on in nature. So. Right. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, conducting an experiment within an experiment this year because um, last year, so our, our curriculum here in California, the, our, our curriculum framework um, suggests that our, our final curriculum piece before the end of the school year is a piece on global change. Mm-hmm. And um, that was where I, where I tried out this series of lessons last June Um this year I've, I'm actually, I've just started, I've just started, um, last Friday, um, in the context of ecosystems and climate change much earlier in the school year. So it's, it's occupying a different slot in my storyline. And I'm, as I do this, I'm going to be evaluating, do I like it better later in the, in the school year? Do I like it better earlier in the school year? It just seemed to fit the storyline well this year, particularly since Anne and I sort of kind of accidentally ended up leading our campus. What do we climate? Can we call, we can't call them protests, our climate um, it was a March. March. March for the climate. Yeah, we had we had some interesting um, pushback on the nature of a Friday climate event mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And so for me, um, moving on now to the question of how do how do organisms respond to global change, 
seemed like a good opportunity to try out these lessons much earlier in the school year. I'm already seeing some pros and cons in that, but I think it's a fun thing to play around yeah, with. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Um, and so when I think of our conversations, Anne, you you get accredited as doing the reading guides that are associated with this. And I know um, from our conversations and that there's more work to be done, I think, for all of us on some of our goals in there. Um, and I was looking through your reading guides in there. Uh, what were your goals for creating read, reading guides for the curriculum that we're working on? Well, I was really motivated by the case study, right? The whole um, research profile mm -hmm. and the entire history of this research. And I think that this is something that students don't see as far as how science really is done and works, right? This whole collaborative effort that starts with a question and then just continues to develop into more and more um, research going, you know, the kind of flow from question to answer to question to answer and, um, and how it involves field work and lab work and, how, um, you know, there, there's just, how does the evidence that has been gathered fit into the hypothesis and how does the hypothesis change over time? How do uh, people's understandings change over time? And I think that Anna did a really beautiful job of writing that research profile. And I could just see using it in my classroom to um, illustrate to the students that this is really what science is. It's a long-term endeavor. It's a bunch of people communicating with each other. Um, it does, you know, go in different ways as far as the questions that it answers and the insight that you're not expecting to get at the very beginning, but it's, you know, kind of surprising. And I wanted them to read that research profile, but I wanted them to think more deeply about, you know, kind of each element of it. And um, so I thought if, you know, the reading guide would help them focus on some of the, um, like not um, developing their own questions at this point, mm -hmm. but at least being able to understand, you know, where the questions came from and, and how, you know, the um, methods were developed to try to answer those questions and just to make it more understandable for them, like kind of to give them just, you know, a thematic um, journey kind of. So hopefully that will do that. I haven't tried them yet. <laughs> it, it also gives me a way of assessing understanding. Yeah. So that too, um, do, are my students really understanding how this research worked and, you know, developed, et cetera, yeah. and the whole kind of what do you need to know in order to support your hypothesis, right? And how do you get that information? Yeah, as you were talking, I was hearing you say the different NGSS practices. You know, you're talking about asking questions and, you know, the ladybugs that we use are a model system and, you know, developing and, you know, designing investigations. Like all of those things are, are there um, in this. Right. So it is also an avenue into um, exemplars of, of the science practices that actually take place in science labs. So those things come out through those that reading guide. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the other thing that I know that you've talked about, Anne, is the the idea of of ac uh, accessibility to students who might be English language learners and like the hope that we'll be able to, you know, find Lexile numbers for students who are emerging English readers um, as we go. Um, I don't think we have those things up yet, but I know that's been something that you've been talking about um, as we've been working. Well, I, yeah, I think that was Anna. Yeah, it? that was really? that was Anna in Caroline's lab. Okay. We have we have a circuit of A's. A's oh right? yeah, we got all the Anns and Annas. So um, uh, I don't know right. if you guys have been a part of that as well. Or if that's just going to be something that's um, going to appear. Just, just sort of parenthetically, you know, Anna Lyons in Caroline's lab um, is a former seventh grade teacher. Mm. And um, she actually did Teach for America. Mm. So she, she's been in the serious trenches and, and has um, a real passion for, for reaching the hardest to reach kids. And so she'd really like to see um, the product adapted for kids who really struggle to access information. And then one of the other graduate students in Caroline's lab is fluent in Spanish. And so he's talked about 
um, doing some translations of the material so that they can be accessible by um, Spanish speaking audiences. So, you know, there's some interesting ideas about um, differentiation and accessibility that, that it will be interesting to see how this project develops. Yeah. And I know that personally, I would like to, um, we have, you have a nice um, intro stats um, part that's part of your standard curriculum you've put out there. Um, I would like to mm-hmm. make something that's a little bit more robust that gets into, you know, t-tests and you know statistical choices sure. and something like that 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 extends beyond. Um, I think I I jokingly said that in August I created a blank document that says something like statistical extensions for AP biology and ladybug project. And it's like currently a blank document <laughs> because, you know, the summer is only so long and, uh, yes. <laughs> the writing curriculum is hard. So, uh, but yeah, right. I'm, I'm excited where we've gotten to in the time that we've done this. So, um, before we, before we get into you guys asking me some questions, uh, what are you guys looking forward to in your classrooms? You've already sort of alluded to, you've moved into this space, which hopefully you are moving into for the rest of your career, but what are you guys looking forward to in, in the next uh, year or two to come? Uh, we can start with you, Nikki. I guess I'm hopeful that we will have a climate here in our district, in our teaching environment that allows me to continue to do the best job I can to give my students this experience of what it really feels like to think and act like a scientist. Um, my One of my central goals as a teacher is, yes, it would be nice to inspire kids to go into science. And, and you know, this is my 17th year teaching. Um, I'm now at the point where I do have kids who are who have gone into the science profession, but let's face it, most of them won't. But um, I mean, all we have to do is look around at the perils of, of having science illiterate adults running things. Um, Anything Mm -hmm. I can do to help counter that um, is very satisfying. Um, And I hope, I mean, I think the NGSS in their purest form, um, emphasize exactly that you know those as you mentioned the science and engineering practices are the things that scientists do and this project and i have another project that i'm working on it's an astrobiology project that's offering me analogous opportunities to to roll up my sleeves in the lab and be the scientist and they make great stories because because i am doing all of these things that i am asking my students to do as well and so we do these things together. I just hope that I'll continue to have the professional academic freedom to do that. Um, we'll see. <laughs> and what are you looking forward to in the years to come? Yeah, that last hoping to have the academic freedom to uh, help students, you know, emulate the way scientists think, you know, and sometimes that requires flexibility and being able to go in different directions and not have to follow a a real strict curriculum sequence, you know, as far as exactly what we're teaching, what we're testing, the time we take. So I'm hopeful of that. I, I think maybe if we, we keep on trying to do what we're doing as a department. I think we have a very strong department here and we all have a pretty strong shared goal that it's more important to develop critical thinking skills, analytical skills, questioning skills, those kinds of science practice skills, not just for our kids who are going to be scientists, but for our kids Mm -hmm. who are going to be members of society, especially in today's social climate. Right. And So hopefully we can continue to demonstrate that our approach is working and that our kids are coming out of a science classroom, both with an appreciation of the natural world, but also with, you know, uh, enhanced thinking skills. Yeah. And it's, it always is a, an interesting time when, there are curriculum changes sort of on broad, you know, state or even at district levels. And then um, how people respond to that in terms of giving you the the freedom to make some choices and experiment and not having it too heavily tied to your uh, evaluation. I guess that's the best way of saying it. Um, it seems like the, the evaluation systems are 
in sometimes at odds with the the spirit of learning that we're trying to instill in our students. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I can only speak for Massachusetts. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I think that's a pretty uniform phenomenon that's happening across the U.S. So. I am. I'm going to be really fascinated. This past spring was the first time that we administered um, the new NGSS based science um state state science test um we haven't seen any results yet um i will say that looking at the sample test i had two different reactions one is that as a parent as a teacher as a woman of science this is the kind of thinking that i would want our young adults to have at coming out of 13 years of education and mm-hmm. be Holy cow, we teach at a high in a high achieving, definitely on the upper end of middle class um, school, and most of our kids are going to do very badly on this test. And mm-hmm. I haven't seen the results to bear that out, but I really do think that's going to be the case. And um, I'm very curious to see where the conversation goes from there. Yeah, the, those new tests do. I mean, we're we're in a we're in a similar boat in Massachusetts. Um, we are going to be rolling out our first NGSS aligned mm-hmm. biology tests coming out this year. Oh. Um, in the in the upcoming year, I am, um, I'm pretty confident that the test that we have looks very different than the California test, um, mm-hmm. and looks more like a slight shift away from the traditional test that we used as opposed to um, a test that looks vastly different. Um, the standard shift has been sort of slowly changing. So our standards shifted. Then we did sort of what's called a hybrid test where they only assessed on overlapping standards. So meaning they got rid of certain standards on the test mm-hmm. that were from the old and they only did, th- they only assessed on things that were for both of them. And ours are also subject specific. So our mm-hmm. students will be either taking a biology test or a chemistry test, depending on what they're taking their sophomore year of high school. It is not a cumulative test of the entire high school. So there are many things that make the Massachusetts test very different than what the California test is. And um, I am less concerned about that. But at the same time, I will say that I I do know that it's it's new. And I have colleagues who who teach very at-risk, vulnerable populations and are much more concerned um, because decisions will be made based off of results on those tests. And it's... um, it's a little bit scary from the professional standpoint, but it's also more scary about graduation requirements for us. Like for us, that's the, you know, the vulnerable populations not graduating because they didn't get over a hurdle in a particular test is a, is a hard thing for you to take when you care as much about your kids as I know all of my colleagues do. Sure. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a tough thing. All right. Well, we could, we could drive ourselves down in some, uh, some deep dark places here. So I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears and I'm asking something totally different, which is what do you guys do when you're not teaching? Cause you guys both seem to work, uh, like I do, which is uh, probably not a healthy balance, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I cracked up when I read that, that question on your, on your, um, your document, because I, I think, uh, Anne has me beat. I don't know how Anne does everything that she does, but, I'm not sure that either one of us has a really impressive life outside of West High School. Um, And on top of everything else, by the way, is our academic decathlon coach. So um, because she has all this spare time, that's what else she does. And and our academic kids are um, extremely successful. How'd they do last year? What was? They won. They won county. We never won state. We never win state because we're up against the national champs every year. So, mm-hmm. but, but they did really well. Yeah, they're yeah. a very, very impressive bunch. And Anne puts in countless hours with those academic kids. I, I'm not convinced that she ever actually goes home. <laughs> I do. So, so, so you have to come up with something, Nikki. Nikki, what is one thing you do when you're not teaching? <laughs> um. So I do. It's actually funny you should ask that, Aaron, because I really had what I maintain was the best summer of my life. And I purposely sought out the things that I love to do. And I did them. Um, Quite a few of them do connect to teaching, at least Mm -hmm. sort of tangentially. I worked on obviously the Berkeley project. I was up there for a month. 
Um, I was in Scotland working on my, on my astrobiology project. Um, I love to travel. So um, certainly both trips allowed me to do some travel both within the context of the projects and ancillary travel. Um, and I got to spend time with, with most of the people that I love the most. So mm -hmm. that's a bit of a broad thing is I love to do science. I love to travel. I love to be with the people I care about. And I'm definitely at a point in my life where, where a, those things matter more because, because, you know, getting close to 60, you are, you know, I'm starting to lose some of the people that, that matter the most to me. Um, but it's also definitely making me think about what the future holds. Um, I don't see myself as the kind of person who's going to retire in say five years time and, and take up quilting <laughs> and I don't know, join, join some society. That's not me. Um, so it's actually giving me an, an, an interesting opportunity to reflect on what my next steps are going to be. Um, I don't know, more pragmatically, what else do I like to do? I really like to read books, but I'm in the awful situation of by the time I get home and have finished my grading and whatever, I seem to read the same paragraph in the same book and fall asleep fall over asleep, it yeah. and then not remember what I read the next night. So um, time is always an issue. Yeah. All right. And you, you've been built up as the person who does more outside of school yeah. um, <laughs> in spite of your academic. What do you do when you're not teaching? So when I have the time, I love to garden and I like to can what I garden. Um, mm. I like to uh, to cook. And I mean, I haven't been doing a whole lot of any of that lately because I seem to spend more and more time, you know, with NGSS, we basically developed a new curriculum. So um, right now it's all about you know, trying out lessons, tweaking them, rewriting them. And of course, as you know, with AP Bio, there's a lot of grading. <laughs> and so I have a very busy out of school teaching um, commitment, I, I feel like. And I'm actually looking forward to retirement because I think I need some more time to do some of those other things. But, um, you know, I, I love teaching, but there's also a time for, I think I'm going to take my relatively new grandson to every museum I can and do things like that. We have a wonderful role model for that. Our, um, we have a colleague who retired three years ago mm -hmm. who is similar in age to us. Um, she was actually my master teacher when I started here. She was our department chair forever. And, um, also poured her heart and soul and passion into her career and was an extraordinary, really extraordinary teacher. I really regard her as quite the role model. Um, but since she's retired, holy cow, she looks 10 years younger yeah. and she's enjoying her four grandkids immensely and she's traveling and, and it's just really neat how she loved what she did while she did it. Um, but now she's, she's, really, really ready and really embraced the next part of her life as well. Um, so yeah. I think Anne and I are definitely at a point where we're both thinking what that's going to look like. And I'm sure yeah. And I'm, I'm starting to watch the, I mean, so I've been teaching since I was 22. So I'm actually wow. in my 24th year teaching. Wow. Um, and I've been in the same building for 20 years. Oh. Um, so I'm actually not that far. I mean, it's to the point where um, in like, three years, I'm going to be on the like first page of seniority for my district. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, like that kind of thing, like three or four years, like before I'm 50, I will be on the first page of seniority and I will be able to retire in a little bit more than a decade at this point, like wow. in terms of at those points. But you do watch that. Like you start to watch how do people how do people handle the end of their career? Like, it's not something I'm really thinking about actively, but I, it is starting something that you begin to notice. Like, right. how do people handle the transition to the end of their career? Is it a case where, especially if you're somebody who does pour their heart and soul into what they do, do they have things that are going to that are going to fill their lives in a meaningful way when they transition over, or is it going to be like sad? And there are, I've seen both in the last few years. Right. Um, 
Yeah, well, Betty, who Nikki was talking about, is now working for the Amgen Biotech Experience as one yeah. of their presenters, and so there there is a crossover. I hmm. I mean, I can't really see myself not doing anything related to what I'm doing now, but I agree. Just having more flexibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. Huh. All right. Well, uh, before we get to picks of the episode, do you guys have any questions for me? I know I answered one of your initial questions about how how did the how did the strange Massachusetts teacher wedge his way into the California project? Uh, I have a funny anecdote about that. Uh, but uh, what other questions do you guys have for me? Um, as I am curious because you teach AP, you both teach AP, and I have never taught AP. Um, I know there have been a lot of changes in the AP curriculum that were at least intended to align with the philosophy of NGSS. Do you, Aaron, and Anne, you're welcome to chime in on this. Do you think that that these are meeting the goal of of shaping our students to have more authentic science experience and ultimately graduating more science literate young adults? Do you think we're on the right path? Yeah, I mean, I could say from my perspective, um, and I did teach in the legacy curriculum before they changed it over originally, before the 2012 uh, version, and then we've just done a, a second revision. Um, specifically looking at that content uh, context, the answer is absolutely yes. Okay. The curriculum that existed in you know, 2010, 2011 was a fire hose of content. Um, you did not need to critically think. If you were a great memorizer, you, you could get a five on that exam. Um, if you were a student of privilege who took a really rigorous honors bio course and then a really rigorous AP course with lots of lecture, lots of homework, you could be well prepared for that. Um, and you did not need to be able to apply the science practices. Um, I don't think you needed to even do any of the labs, even though there were 12 required labs. As long as you knew what the labs were about and what you were supposed to know about those labs, you didn't actually have to critically think to achieve anything in those labs. So from that standpoint, moving into the the more modern version, I definitely think that the science practices are much more part of the assessment. Um, and I, I was, you know, as somebody who as a reader and has scored the, the test, when you look at them, you can actually see the science practices weaved through those questions. And in the new revision of it, you can see them even more clearly brought into those, like really can see that, oh, this question is really asking about modeling. This question's really about asking questions. This one's really about data. So I think they're they're moving in the right direction. Um, I yeah, don't know if Anne feels similarly. I agree. I actually think that um, College Board was on the cutting edge of that. Um, when we had our first major curriculum change, and then we had NGSS. Well, of course, I'm sure that there were certain areas in the country that were ahead of California and NGSS. But it seemed like that kind of um, that kind of philosophy came in AP before it came to our state standards. And I, I agree with what you said, Aaron. I think it's a much better yeah, problem. I, I agree. I think that that's that's sort of the same the same thing that happened in Massachusetts that the AP standards were ahead of the were ahead of the the NGSS rollout in our state. Um, so that's yeah. definitely the case. But um, they are time consuming. That was my question for you because it seems like you do a lot of project based learning and inquiry type of um, labs, activities, <laughs> whatever investigations. How do you how do you have time for all of that? Um, so, uh, one thing I do not, I do not do something that I would view as sustainable, uh, for anybody else to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I teach with another colleague who's been teaching for 24 years. Um, he's, uh, an amazing colleague. Um, and he is also like, lets me sort of push him to do things that I want to do, um, <laughs> in a way that not everybody would be comfortable, but he's got enormous capacity as a teacher. Um, we think very differently. Um, and he's just done it. He's just really, really amazing. So we are, we have moved to an AP that is storylined out. Oh. Um, so what we did is we blew up the curriculum and we reorganized it into a series of stories that we find engaging. Um, and, that's what our curriculum looks like right now. Um, so it doesn't, I don't follow the eight prescribed units that they have. Right. We have larger stories 
um, which is why it was actually quite easy for me. Not that it was easy, but it, I think it was a little easier for me to wrap my head around writing the curriculum the way I did uh-huh. because it fits into the ethos of how I want to teach. Um, I don't teach by chapters. I don't teach by units. I teach by broad stories. So we're asking the question, you know, how do organisms respond to um, changes in their environment um, and how will climate change you know, impact that? So that's what we're doing this month as we're playing with the ladybugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- to do that, we talk about sort of ecosystem structure and food webs and food chains and ecosystem interactions, including, you know, predator-prey relationships and competition um, and abiotic factors and biotic factors. And then we move into the idea of sort of those abiotic factors having shifts on population. Then we get into the variation that exists within there. And we talk about the molecular pieces that are tied to that Um and then we do the experimental design components and the practices that are highlighted by these experiments that are pursuing those broader questions that Elizabeth and Nathan are really pursuing in their labs along with Caroline. So um, that's that's sort of the way we're tackling it. I see. Um, that makes sense. So, so like, yeah, like my curriculum doesn't make a ton of sense in the traditional AP standpoint, but we actually, so, and so we tackle, what we've done is um, I sort of just ripped up the standards and we actually did this physically. We took all the standards <laughs> and we grouped them together into like themes. So we took all the learning objectives and we grouped them together into themes that we thought were themes that were kind of similar to us in the way we think, like metabolism. Like we took all of the metabolism standards, regardless of where they fit into the the learning objectives that they have laid out in the AP, right? we clustered them together in what we thought they go together. And then we grouped that and we put that into a section where we thought it was appropriate to do metabolism. So we actually already did that. So we did metabolism in our first unit or our first story. And then now we're coming back to it. So when we do this PGI thing that ties back into metabolism a little bit, there's touchstones to what we've done before. So we do a little spiraling of our curriculum. We do a lot of callbacks. We do cumulative exams each month. Um, But with that said, I've got a lot of privilege with what I'm doing. One, I teach in a a school where we do win the academic decathlon every year. Um, You know, we are a 50% fives uh, on the AP biology exam uh, I teach with another colleague who is, you know, arguably one of the best AP biology teachers in the country. Um, you know, I've got great kids who work really hard, who are super well prepared before they walk in the door for me. I can do a lot of these things and they, these kids can roll with it. Um, and we've been building out our scaffolding to help students who want to stretch into AP. And we've been working on, you know, looking at some standards-based grading models and some other things like that to make the curriculum more accessible because our students who are stretching into our curriculum are students who would be in APs in other schools because they're strong students. They're just not as strong as our strongest students, if that makes any sense. So um, yeah, I I teach in a great place. And uh, my goal, I think over the next few years is to take the curriculum that we have and move it into a place where we can where we can make it so that I could tell other people these stories that we're doing um, and that it would be sustainable and transitionable so that similar to what Jason Crean does with his NGSS storylines or what the Inquiry Hub group in Colorado does, they'd be able to take somebody else who teaches AP who would like to play around with storylines in AP would be able to say, oh, rather than doing unit you know, unit six and seven, why don't we do these two stories? Or why don't we do this story and we'll make up our own story for this other one? Um, And they would have the freedom to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah, we are very storyline project-based thing. And then the other thing is that we have a new new schedule this year where they gave us um, a ton more time for lab in AP biology as just sort of a byproduct of it. So I am like spoiled on time on top of all of the other privileges I have. I got spoiled with time this year uh, to roll labs out. So I have a, I have way more curriculum time than I've ever had in my career to work with AP. And um, it's, that's been kind of awesome. So I think we need, (laughs) I think our administrators need to hear this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Like we've been, I feel like we've been shortchanged for a lot of time. So we've, we had only had uh, 47 minutes a day, every day, plus one extra 47 minute period every six days in our old schedule. Uh-huh. And it was really tight to try to do what we were doing. Oh, awesome. And now yeah. we have, yeah, we were super tight. So we were like 
under times compared to most people I know. And this year, so we went from doing that for years to now having, and last year was actually shorter. We only had 45 minutes for those periods. And now we're at 55 minute periods um, and we drop one every seven days, but we have lab every other day um, on top of it. So we've gained massive amounts of time. So you have your, Um, you have your AP class plus a lab class. Yeah. The downside is that to make it work in our schedule, my lab students and my class students are not necessarily the same and they work as separate classes. Uh So I actually have four sections of lab that meet every other day. So you're, Um, they're enrolled in two different courses then. They're enrolled in two different courses and I end up having like, I have 140 something students as a byproduct of that. Actually, I'm closer to 150 because I have my classes and so I have my two AP classes plus my honors class. So that's, yeah, that's 76 or so students. I guess I have over, um, I guess I have over 150 students this year. And then I have 20, more than 20 kids in every single AP lab. Now, some of those students are students I have twice. In fact, a lot of them are most of my lab students I have for one of my classes, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still like papers and like a grade book spot that I have to put a grade in. So I have like massive numbers of kids this year, and that's a that's been a logistically hard thing to figure out. Mm-hmm. Right, but it's interesting. All right, any other questions for me before we move on to picks of the episode? That was a great couple, great couple of questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think no. so. Uh, All right. Awesome. All right. So let's get to picks of the episode. And you guys are going to do a shared pick this week. Um, I don't know. Nikki, do you want to tell us about your pick? Oh, well, this was just an article in in the in our Los Angeles Times this morning. Um, My kids know that I'm fond of reading science over breakfast. I grow less and less fond of reading non-science over breakfast because um, <laughs> it just depresses me. But this was this this was on the front page of the Times today that California is the first state to push back school start times, and um, apparently with we have now three years to implement that schools cannot start earlier than eight thirty for anything other than a zero period um, based on on. The research, the the medical biomedical research that shows that teenagers just are by nature on a later sort of circadian rhythm, and that they'll do better getting up later and going to bed a little bit later. And um, I just I think yeah. it's interesting because it's got it's got it's got so much biology and sociology and so many practical concerns about it. And uh, Anne's right; my kids were talking about it today, and mostly overwhelmingly positive they couldn't wait to start at 8 30 instead of eight um even zero period you know i teach zero period we start at seven it'll you know it it, i mean these poor kids you know this time of year it's getting kind of dark now and you know we're all going to start in the dark and they stand out there and it's dark and cold and and but i also recognize that that it's going to be a painful shift and and you know this doesn't necessarily that mean mean that employers are going to change their hours to accommodate parents who have to drop kids off at school. So there will be problems associated with it, um, logistical mm-hmm. problems mostly. Um, I will be curious to see how that all plays out. I will also say that that one of my pet peeves anyway is um, I don't know what your school how your school handles athletics, but our <laughs> athletics. Um, our our competitive athletes um, often leave school early, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this also means that all sports are going to shift later, or if it just means that our kids are going to leave even earlier, which would be sort of horrible. So I don't know. I have you know I definitely have logistical questions, but overall, as a biologist, I think it's and and as a and as a parent, I think it's a great mm-hmm. idea. I think it's one of the few um, times when I think having a very kind of top down, all of California needs to do this is going to be a good way to implement it, right? Because it will answer the athletic problem, I think, because if every school starts at 830, then they can move every school's athletic um, events back unless they need lights, I guess. Right. I also hope that that by making it statewide, it will make the logistical conversations with with employers um, Mm. more robust. I think if it was district by district, I mean, you know, how do you do that? How do you work in 
Santa Monica and have your kid go to school in Torrance and, and Torrance does things different than Santa Monica does things different than Long Beach. I mean, just by making it uniform across the state, it's going to force the conversations about what, what family life is going to look like. Yeah. That's, and I was telling you guys before we started recording that we moved, we used to start at 723. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last year we moved forward to uh, just past eight o'clock and that our start time this year is eight o'clock. And I will say for me, like as an adult, <laughs> it's been good. Like yeah. I don't sleep enough. I, I for my, most of my career, I have been like borderline sleep deprived and mm. I am somebody who works very hard at what I do. And mm. I stay up late, you know, writing, you know, grading mm. and providing feedback and doing that stuff. But my circadian rhythms as I am a little bit more of a night owl in general. So I tend to get a second wind around nine o'clock and sometimes I want to, you know, get through a stack and I'd get done at 11. Well, if you get down at 11 and your school day starts at seven 30 and you work a half an hour away and everybody's got to get up and get ready in the morning, I was getting up at five 30 in the morning. Right. You know, there were a lot of days I was not getting six hours sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, in the old schedule, I would say I probably average six hours sleep for most of my teaching career since I've been at Acton uh, there. But since that point, now I am consistently getting up after six. I'm getting up about 6.15, 6.20 every morning. Uh, and so even when I stay up to 11, 11.30 or you know, 11, 11.15, I'm getting seven hours sleep this year um, on a regular basis. And so in the last two years, my sleep, my you know, sleep hygiene has gotten a lot better. Um, and uh, and that what you were saying earlier about reading, Nikki, is exactly what I do. I, <laughs> I have been reading a, a short story collection for the last, like, it's not a long collection, but I've been reading it for about a month. It's yeah. like 180 pages. <laughs> and I am just, I I might get it done by the end of October at the way I'm going. I'm, right. I'm creeping through this thing. So, uh, yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to hearing what happens there. We've been doing it in Massachusetts. We've been doing it piecemeal. It hasn't been top down, but a lot of districts are moving later. Um, it hasn't been a top down statewide type thing yet. But you're right. The more schools that do it, the logistics of school to school stuff gets easier. Um, and that is something that we've had to deal with that you guys probably won't have to deal with. Right. Um, for, particularly for sports. Uh, we, we have lost, uh, we have more kids missing our last period for sports now than they used to. Um, fortunately we've also moved to a rotational schedule. So now it's a little bit more equitable. It used to be in our old schedule that if you taught the last period of the day, particularly when we first shifted to the later start time, I would just miss like my cross country athletes. My, I had, I had a group of cross country <coughs> athletes and track athletes that year. And they just, they missed like once a week, right? The runners, the runners just missed biology eighth period. Mm-hmm. Like they just did. Yep. And so now in our new schedule, when it rotates, at least there's a degree of equity with that. That's right. Good. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we're here. And uh, the thing I do when I am not teaching is I run. Um, yeah. And this, pa- this past Saturday, I was down in Hartford as a pacer for the Hartford Half Marathon. Oh, cool. um, it's something I've done the last couple of years. Um, as I get old and not quite able to crush those PRs anymore, um, <laughs> like getting to a PR right now is, is hard, but um, I still can contribute to the running community. And so I started pacing uh, last year for Hartford and I'm the 140 pacer for Hartford, which just means I go out and run a 140 and people who are targeting that as their goal can stick with me and then usually can kick to the end. And uh, we had perfect weather on Saturday. But also, my pick is that the first man, uh, 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 Kipchoge, ran a sub two-hour marathon on Saturday. The first man to ever do it. And it was a designed event. It was an assisted event. He had pacers who rotated in and out with him. He had a car that had a laser line in front of him that had that tower two hour pace in there. And some of the stuff that came online were people like, oh, it was an assisted event and da 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 da. And I would say that anybody who has any issue with that, I want you to go out and run. I, I'll, we'll make it easy. You can run a quarter mile at the pace that he ran for 26.2 because he ran 434 miles, four minute and 34 second miles for 26.2 miles. Just mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it said to me was it can be done. You know, it just yes. can be done. It, it doesn't, it, to me, it didn't really matter whether it was in a competitive setting or not. It just was an extraordinary feat of human endurance. 
that's that's exactly what it was. And it will be, I will tell you, there will be a time, and I'm hoping it's sometime in the next couple of years, that somebody's going to run a sub two hour in an open event. They'll do it at Berlin. They'll do it at one of the like really fast mm-hmm. uh, marathons that exists, you know, maybe down in Houston. Or there's a handful of events that um, the LA Marathon's actually pretty fast too. Uh, there's a handful of marathons around the world where competitors come in and they run and and there there's a few that could be targeted at two hour. And I think that will be amazing. But I, I don't know that it would have happened if some of the things that they figured out doing it this way that that opened up the possibility that's really a thing. Um, and so I think somebody's going to do it in an open race, you know, maybe probably Berlin or one of those type of events. But I thought it was an amazing thing. And I also, as somebody who paces, like, I don't want to take anything away from the people who ran with me. They they achieved their goals. And I think there's something to say about picking a goal, whether it's just a a goal that seems just out of reach for yourself or in his case for all of mankind and then figuring out ways to achieve that goal. I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's uplifting to me. Um, and so I was, I was super excited about that. And then on Sunday, uh, the women's world record in the marathon was set in Chicago. So, right. um, <laughs> yeah, we had a great, great weekend for distance running, uh, for me, uh, in terms of that. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. It's amazing. All right. All right. Well, thank you two for joining me. Let me give you my show credits. Um, for those of you guys who are out there listening, um, definitely check out the uh, the Ladybug Project. Links will be in my show notes. Um, you can support me um, by going to Life of the School on Patreon. Um, I post show notes up there and there'll be plenty of links to the things we've talked about during this, including pics and lots of Ladybug resources that are in there. Um, you can also subscribe to Life of the School on any podcast player of choice, including Spotify. Music on the, in this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Show notes are also posted on lifeoftheschool.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. I tweet out my episodes every couple of weeks. So thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to everybody soon. Okay.